Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the How To Money podcast today. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me along. No worries. And I've got you on today to talk about getting invested in shares. Yeah, yeah, no, favourite topic, so happy to jump in there. So we talk a lot about exchange-traded funds on the How To Money podcast, and that's a great place to start for people who are just getting started with investing. But we do get a lot of questions about how to build your own share portfolio and actually picking shares and knowing where to look because there are thousands in Australia alone. Mm-hmm. So getting an expert on is hopefully going to shed a bit of light on how to actually get started building your own share portfolio. Yeah, fantastic. All right, let's dive in. Wonderful. So just before we start, a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, for sure. So I'm a financial planner and uh, have my own practice and we're self-licensed. I've been running that since 2006. And prior to that, I was an employed planner Mm. with one of the banks. So that's kind of where I did my apprenticeship. And I, I left there in 2006, yeah, and then I've run my own show since then. And I guess the reason that you and I have come into contact is because I've also got the Financial Autonomy yes. podcast, which we've been doing for a few years now. We're into our third year, and that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, so, you know, it's podcasting, talking about finance, talking about investing. <laughs> I guess the Financial Autonomy podcast is about gaining choice. Mm. So that's a lot of sort of what we think about, I guess, rather than, you know, just all traditional retirement and mm. I don't know, nose to the grindstone until you're 65 <laughs> and then you can look up, you know, we're trying yeah, to think yeah. about, well, how else can, can life evolve and how can we gain that choice, gain that ability to pursue different interests or, or different journeys along the way, career changes, these sorts of things. So that's the sort of stuff we explore and I guess think about how we can do things like investing, investing in shares. How can we do that to give you those kind of choices and those options? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I'll definitely include a link to it in the show notes so people can yeah, check cool. that out as well. I don't think we cover too much of the same ground, so definitely right. uh, Lots of new content to listen to there. Cool. So to get started, let's talk about what is the share market and maybe we'll just focus on the Australian share market and how does it work? Yeah, okay. Well, well, actually, I know you said just focus on the Australian share market, but let's <laughs> take a step back, right? Yeah. Just, I mean, it's a bit, I don't know, nerdy, right? But first share markets were about the 1600s and it was in Amsterdam, right? And the reason that they came about, you had the Dutch East India Company. And I don't know, there's been some really good graphics on the internet of like, if you're adjusted for inflation or whatever, the Dutch East (laughs) India Company versus Google and these sort of things. And it's like dwarfs Google and that. Like it was absolutely massive in its day, you know. So they were sending ships, particularly around to, you know, India and these kind of places and getting spices and things, bringing it back to Europe, making a fortune, right? But it costs a lot of money to send a ship and crew it and it's months away and sometimes they get attacked by pirates or (laughs) bad weather or who knows what happens, right? So that's not the kind of thing that even the average wealthy person could finance all by themselves. So they needed a way for people to be able to come together and sort of pool their money to make these kind of voyages viable, right? Mm. So that's where the idea of share market come from. It was a way of how can we have a mechanism that people can come together, all invest their money together, but also, and this is I guess where the share market, people will be most familiar with it today. So it got a mechanism to write, I've got an initial idea and I want to raise some capital. 
that's the foundations of why the share market exists. But actually, day to day, that's not most of the activity. Most of the activity is companies that have already raised the capital and people own those shares, but for whatever reason, they don't want to own them anymore. <laughs> so the share market gives them the ability to sell it to someone else who does want to own them, right? It's a market. It's an easy way to, to trade between the two. You know, so that was the, the foundations, the reason that share markets come about. And they're really, they're no different today, okay? So narrowing in now just on the Australian share market, and and doesn't really matter, all the markets around the world, they're all pretty well the same. As a shareholder, you're buying a share, which means that you've got a, a part ownership in a particular company. And it's quite nice in that, if you weren't involved in the share market and you and I owned a business together, right? Let's say it was 50-50. Mm. If that business got into strife, we'd be directors and we'd have all sorts of personal <laughs> liabilities, okay? Yeah. But with the share market, they're limited liability companies so that even though if you and I each own shares in a company listed on the stock market, if that company went bust or whatever, all we can do is lose our investment. Okay. They can't pursue us for anything else, right? So there's a limit there. So we're kind of, we're invested, we participate, we get a portion of the profits, which we get through dividends. Mm. And hopefully to some of the profits, the companies will reinvest, you know, the research and development, or maybe they take over a competitor or something like that. Um, So therefore the value of the shares will tend to increase over time. And so we get, as part owners of that business, we get to participate in that. And at any time, if we want to get out, we can just, usually these days, jump online and you've got them sold in about 30 seconds. So it's a pretty fantastic environment. I don't know. I've always found it interesting. And if you're thinking about different investment options, I mean, you can put it in the bank, Well, which obviously you need for short-term things and all the rest of it. That has its place. But there's not a lot you can do around that. I guess property is probably the most comparable alternative to shares because you have got growth there and you've got rental income and you know, there's a lot of parallels. But if you want to get out of property you got to list it and it's probably three months at best until you get your money. And it's not like you can sell off a bit of it. You've got to sell off you the whole thing. You can't sell off the bathroom. Correct. Correct. And the same on the way in. You know, you've got to come up with your whatever it is, 400000 or it uh, depends which market you're in, but it's a large chunk. Mm. You can certainly can't do a $500 investment into a property. So shares have got so many advantages. And when you go into the share market, of course, you could invest in a resources company or a biotech company or a company that collects the garbage, right? Like, you know, so there's an enormous diversity of what you can do there. And that's just investing in Australian shares. Then you've got all the global shares as well. So yeah, it's a pretty dynamic, you know, I think really exciting area to be investing. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a lot of emphasis, especially at the moment on getting started and using exchange traded funds or even managed funds or index funds and things like that. What are some of the reasons that people choose to invest in shares over some of these more managed products, less hands-on? It's a really interesting question because, like, I do a bit of both, right? And for most of my clients, we probably do a bit of both as well. I think, I guess I've reflected on this. If I won the lottery, which is pretty unlikely because I don't normally buy a ticket, but anyway, let's just imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I don't know, I, I just wanted to sit on a beach for the rest of my days. I'd probably only own ETFs, to be honest, because they're pretty stress-free. They give you great exposure to the market and these days they're pretty cheap. They really tick all the boxes. You know, whatever your objective is, you can construct a portfolio with ETFs or managed funds to get the job done. And probably, and and I'm sure you've probably covered this in past episodes, but just for the listeners, if you haven't sort of come across it, so ETFs, exchange-traded funds and managed funds, they're essentially the same thing. It's just ETFs are funds that are listed on the stock market so you can buy and sell them through your share broker, whereas managed funds, you've got to go to the fund manager to get in and out. Yeah. Traditionally, there was a bit more difference than that. There was commissions and there was active management versus passive management. We don't want to get into the weeds on that sort of (laughs) stuff. But these days, essentially, they're the same thing, right? It's just whether you do it through the share market or you do it direct with the fund manager. Mm. 
same concept though. It's it's people combining and then rather than you buying a single share, you're buying into a fund that might have 50 or 200 or 5,000 shares, you know, you're getting that spread. So to get back to your question, you know, why individual shares versus ETF, to be honest, there's no need to ever go individual shares if you don't want to, right? You could totally achieve all your investment aims using some sort of fund structure like an ETF. Mm. And for a lot of people, I totally encourage you to do that. And like I say, if I was lazy and didn't want to ever look at the share market again, that's what I'd do <laughs> myself. Right? But the nice thing with individual shares, well, there's a few. I mean, for one, if you own them, you're not paying any sort of management fee. And even though these days ETFs are pretty cheap, but they're not zero, okay? So if you own the shares yourself, then you don't have to pay any sort of management fee. It also means with the funds, and this is less so with the index type ETFs, but they nevertheless, they do a little bit of buying and selling of shares and that can trigger capital gains tax which then flows through to you as the investor. Whereas if you own the shares yourself and you never sell them, then you're never going to trigger any capital gains. But I think really the main reason is because people are just interested and it's a bit like following a football team. <laughs> you get involved, you get engaged, or maybe you're... It doesn't seem to be so much people that invest in their employer so much that I come across, but sometimes, you know, they're in an industry. Yeah. They might be in the, the packaging industry or something like that. And so they've got a bit of insight there and they hear this new player coming in who's got this really clever product and they go, oh, that's really smart. I'd like to invest in that, right? So often it's just people that are interested in things. I've got a client I spoke to today who's invested in one of the mining companies and that's just because his son works for him. And so his son talks about it all the time and he's like, oh, well, I want to have a bit of an interest. That's where my son works. And I want it. it's like, as I say, supporting the football team, you know, I want them, I want them to do well. So I think if your goal was just purely, look, I'm trying to have a million dollars and I want to get it by the time I'm whatever, 45, if that's your only consideration, you could just go ETFs, managed funds, job done, and probably get to that goal with more certainty than going individual shares. But I think a lot of people like the, the intellectual challenge of picking individual shares and just that getting their hands dirty, I guess, getting a bit more involved. Yeah. So Definitely a little bit more time involved if you want to manage a share portfolio over the top of an ETF portfolio. Yeah, I guess it doesn't have to be. If you buy and hold long term, it doesn't have to be. I mean, a bit of research, I guess, initially to decide what to buy. But if you're happy to sit on it for 10 years. I mean, the grandparent portfolio of BHP and CSL that they all got at the float is a uh, Done very well for them, but... Especially CSL, yeah. They're the perfect sort of, for them, back in the day, buying that and just sitting on it. I mean, they haven't had to do anything. Commonwealth Bank, I guess. A lot of retirees have got that one as well. And um, But, you know, you get some. I mean, Qantas hasn't done as well. Uh, Telstra depends when you got in. So it's a bit hit and miss, some of those yeah. kind of ones. Yeah. But, yeah, certainly... I wouldn't necessarily advocate buying individual shares and not looking at it yeah. for 10 years, <laughs> right? You know, you'd probably want to look at it once a year or once every six months or something like that, or you wouldn't want to check it too often. But certainly, if you can buy a share and sit on it for 10 years, it's awesome because all that growth, as soon as you sell it, you've got to pay capital gains tax, right? So a portion of that goes to the government. Yeah. Now, taxes are important and we need our hospitals and that sort of stuff. So I'm not saying, you know, we don't want to avoid tax, right? We don't need to pay our tax. But if you can sit on that share... And let's say, just for easy numbers, right? Let's say you put a thousand bucks in and 10 years down the road, it's worth well, 3,000, okay? Which is a pretty good outcome. Yeah. So, you know, you've got that growth. Now you've got $3,000 in that share, which means the dividends you're getting off that share are, are dividends appropriate for a $3,000 investment. But the moment you sell it, you might have to give 500 of that to the government. So then you reinvest, you've only got 2,500 to reinvest now. So therefore the dividends you get off that's going to be off 2,500 instead of the three, right? So the longer you can just buy and leave it alone, the better off you are in general rule. So in which case then it's not a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I get um, questions from other young people who want to 
become the next big day trader. And I mean, when I talked to a few episodes ago about some of my big money mistakes is thinking for a few weeks I was going to be the next big day trader a few years ago. And uh, I had no strategy at all. I was just mucking around in Comsec on my phone. I think I uh, gave uh, Comsec quite a bit of brokerage in that uh, few weeks, but um, definitely decided that was not the career option for me. We've all been there. And the reality is, yeah, I mean, for one, as you pointed out, you got the brokerage, which is going to kill you. Mm. But irrespective, you got to appreciate that on the other side of most of those trades is a computer that can probably do a thousand trades in a second, right? And so the chances of you spotting an opportunity and getting in and out in a day or whatever short period of time and doing that consistently over computers that could be in and out and making fractions of a second and they do it a billion times a day, you got no hope. Absolutely no hope. So yeah, day trading. T- I mean, there are some out there that have made a career of it. I mean, one of my friend's fathers is, but uh, it's definitely not something that you can just pick up by a screen and start going next week. So I think that's definitely one lesson to learn early on that you want to think longer term when you're investing in shares. You don't want to think next 24 hours. And even, I mean, I don't know how long ago it is for your friend's father, but it's less possible now than it was five years ago and certainly 10 and 20 years ago, just because of the advent of high-frequency trading, which is computerized trading. They've kind of got it, you know, just that I'm talking about that really short term trading for a day or a few hours and that sort of stuff. Very smart people that have programmed algorithms to get every single little opportunity possible. That's it. And they're, you know, the brokerage that they're paying is probably Probably one tenth of a cent or something ridiculous. So they're paying nothing like you. So therefore they can do a whole heap of trades and just pick up little bits here and there, but it eats up the opportunities. Mm. And who wants to do that? I mean, the time that you played with that, yeah. as you say, you're looking on your phone. <laughs> you wasted and, and, oh, a week. That's not a life, is it? No, no. So definitely probably something you don't want to start with or go near with when you're getting started with shares. Um, even though it can be quite tempting when you buy your first share and you see it go up 5% the or down, yeah. the temptation can be to just sell it and realise because you either get scared that you've lost 5% of your money or you're ecstatic that you made 5%. Yes. So, well, one of my other questions was there's so many shares in Australia. When you go to the ASX and look at the full list, it's just enormous and you've never heard of 90% of the companies out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you start to filter it down and find some shares that you might actually like to invest in? Yeah, so the way I would do it is... A slight step back, before you can buy any shares, you need a brokerage account. Mm. And there's a fair bit of competition. All the main banks have got them and there's lots of other providers as well. When you're getting your broking account, and it costs you nothing to get your broking account. It's a bit of paperwork, right? Mm. So there's no no barrier to you doing that. A lot of them will have some sort of research element to them. And I would encourage you, especially if you're starting out, even if, you know, you might find one where the brokerage is $15 and another one the brokerage is $20, well... For the sake of an extra $5 a trade, you're not going to be doing that much trade anyway. If the one that's $20 gives you free research, go with that one mm. would be my suggestion, okay? So have a bit of a look around because then what you can do with the research is you can apply filters. So you can go in there and say, well, for one, they'll usually have some sort of estimate of what they think is a fair value for each share. And most of the researchers, they don't cover 2,000 Aussie shares or yeah, whatever. They'll cover 200 or something, but that's enough. So you can go, well, all right, show me all the ones that are below fair value. You know, the filters are slightly different depending on the researcher, but there'll be some way to get it to give you a list of all the ones that this researcher thinks are undervalued, okay? And so that's a pretty good place to start, right? And then you'd sort of go through, and I guess, you know, that classic sort of start with the end in mind, you need to be thinking about, well, what's the objective here? Like if I'm trying to build a portfolio because I want income, which 
probably for the how-to money listeners is not so relevant because it's more for older people. But if you were thinking about income, then as you're going through the list of, all right, well, here's all the ones that the researchers think are currently undervalued, which immediately has probably reduced the list of potential shares down to 40 or, you know, depending on when, right? So it's already down to a manageable number to begin with. Then you can go through and if it's income that you're after, then what you're looking at is the dividend yield. It's like in a bank account, the percentage interest that you would get. Okay, so it might show 4% or 3% or 5% Mm. or whatever. And sometimes they might even get a bit more sophisticated and they'll show grossed up yield, which is where it's got the tax credits, the franking credits added in, (laughs) which we won't go into today. Favourite topic. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. That was all about the last election. So if your focus is about generating income, then you're probably looking for companies that are paying good yield. Mm. If instead your focus is growth, then you might almost be looking at ones that have got low yield because what that tells you is that a lot of their profit, they're reinvesting back into the business. Now, it could also tell you that they're not making much profit and that's why they're not paying much dividends. So you do need to kind of have a bit of a think about it. But say, for instance, like we touched on CSL earlier, right? And I don't want to be giving a recommendation as to who knows whether CSL is right for you or overpriced, underpriced, whatever. But just as an example, like that's a a medical, you know, pharmaceuticals type company. Mm. So therefore, they have a pretty big expenditure on R&D because they're trying to work out new... Yeah, well, it keeps growing. Yeah. Yeah. So their dividend yield tends to be quite low because a lot of their profits are reinvested back into the business. But the consequence of that is that it tends to be a company that grows a lot because although it doesn't pay off a lot of income as a percentage, it grows in value because they're constantly, and it's particularly, you know, we're highlighting probably one of the most successful companies, right? So we're cherry picking a little bit here, but they've been very good at it and growing globally. So for people that are more interested in growth, in some often a, a low dividend yield might be a sign that, okay, this is a company that's got good growth potential, they've got good opportunities to reinvest their capital versus, say, a, a bank, for instance. You know, the Australian banks, they're pretty well established. There's not a lot of room for them to grow, really. So therefore, they tend to pay out most of their profits as dividends, which, if you're income-focused, is awesome but it tends to mean that the share price doesn't go up nearly as much. Mm. So do that initial filter through your researcher and sort of figure out, all right, here's a shortened list. And depending on the researchers that you're looking at, some of them within the filters, you might be able to get them to filter, well, all right, show me everyone that's got a a PE ratio of between two and four or something like that, or sorry, a a dividend yield between two and four. But actually that's another one that we could touch on, but PE ratio, which is called price earnings ratio, all the researchers will show that. And that gives you a bit of a hint towards the growthiness of it as well. So I guess a company that is not expected to grow very much will tend to have a lower price to earnings ratio, PE ratio. So it'll often be in the sort of 10 to 15 range. Mm -hmm. Whereas a company that's expected to grow more, it might be a 20 or a 30% price earnings. And what that's telling you is investors, the market is saying, well, all right, at the moment we're prepared to pay 20 times the annual earnings of this company because we think those earnings are going to go up a lot in the next five or 10 years. So it might be 20 times today's earnings, but that's going to look really good in 10 years when their earnings are 10 times what they are now. Mm. Whereas a company where, and particularly you see this, uh, I can't think of a good example at the moment, but if there was a company where their outlook was negative for whatever reason, I don't know, something's changed, you know, legislatively or something like that, right? And so therefore everyone's thinking, all right, well, they might have made $500 million profit this year. But in 10 years' time, they'd be lucky to make $100 million. You know, I don't say like the newspapers, you know, the age and that sort of stuff, right? Fairfax, you know, which had this massive disruption. Like their PEs might have been down at 10 or 8 or something like that because people are looking into the future and saying, well, those earnings, they're going to decrease 
So we're not prepared to pay so much for those. So price earnings ratio is another interesting one to look at. And it's not like you can say, oh, well, a price earnings of 15 is good and a price earnings of 25 is bad. It's yes. not that simple. You've got to look at the price earnings and then think it through and think, well, what's that telling me? If it's 25, that's telling me, gee, the market's pretty bullish on this company. We think we're prepared to pay 25 times what this company earned this year. Does that seem logical to me? And I guess that's when you talk about individual shares, that's kind of where some of the fun is, I yes. suppose. Because everyone will have a different view on yeah. what is a good PE and what is a good value for this share. Yeah, exactly right. You know, different people have different strategies around that. Because I always find that quite funny because if you're willing to buy the share, then someone's willing to sell it to you. So someone must think they're getting a good deal and you think you're getting a good deal. So. And that is an excellent realisation that I don't think enough people put together. Exactly right. Every time you buy, realise that someone else is selling it. Why are they selling it if it's so good, if it's such an amazing company? I mean, there's probably a lot of ETF providers doing big orders, but you're probably not seeing that, I don't think. Yeah, it'd still be flowing through the market, but it's just, I mean, everyone has their own different reasons. You know, there are people they need to sell because they need the cash because they need the income or they want to sell because they want to buy something different. And and yeah, you've got a lot of institutions that are constantly in and out and foreign institutions investing into the Australian market. And I mean, if you think about, say, particularly managed funds, um, you know, a managed fund might one day with everyone in Australia, you know, some people putting money in, some people taking money out. The net for that day is, right, we've got a million dollars that we've got to get invested. So yeah. pull, we've got to filter that through our portfolio of 80 stocks or whatever they've got in their portfolio. But the next day, they might have a million withdrawal, okay? So now, okay, well, we've got to sell enough out of all our 80 stocks to free up a million dollars worth of cash so we can satisfy all those withdrawals. So you've just always got demand, but you're exactly right, and I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind, is that whenever you sell, so if you're, I don't know, the market's down and you're feeling the world's coming to an end and I've got to sell, well, the person on the other side doesn't think so. Someone on the other side has bought that. They've handed over their money mm. and that gets back to like that day trading stuff. You know, you've got to appreciate that that sort of short-term stuff, often on the other side of that trade is some savvy computer. Mm. Are you really smarter than them? You know, they like have the resources that they do. Yeah. And sometimes it's quite interesting because you can see the retail consumers overreact dramatically um, either side because of a, an announcement. So that I guess that's another thing to keep in mind if you are getting started actually having a look at what the company's releasing because they have to release a lot of information. Yeah, constant disclosure requirements, that's right. Yeah, and, and these days with the internet, it's so easy to look that stuff up. Yeah, mm. so I, it's quite funny because you see instant notifications if a company announces a new contract and suddenly you know what's going on and, well, does that factor into your decision-making? And it also, there's interesting stuff like only a few months ago, right, Westpac had themselves in trouble with this money laundering in the Philippines and all this sort of stuff, right? And their share market copped a bit of a belting. But then, so we had some discussions with clients. Well, okay, so you own Westpac shares. Do we keep owning them or not? Okay. And, and in that case, look, there were some ethical issues there. So in some cases, no, because of concerns around the ethical issues. But putting that aside for a moment, on the financial side of it, well, the reality is the share price is already adjusted. And it reflects that, okay, the expectation based on Commonwealth Bank had a similar problem and we knew what the fine was for that. So therefore, Westpac, you know, they're assuming it's going to be a fine of about a billion dollars and therefore the market's very, very quickly figured out, right, well, let's assume that, you know, in a year or two, Westpac has to fork out a billion dollars so their profit in that year's down, right, well, we're going to knock a couple of bucks off their share price 
Done. And that happens before you even get finished reading the announcement. Right? Correct, right, because the institutions in that have got that straight away. Yeah, and a lot so, of it's automated. I know some of the systems are automated based on, like, news sentiment. They can read correct. the tone. It's pretty crazy. So you and I are not going to be able to react to that sort of stuff. By the time we know about it, it's already priced in. So the only thing is if you felt through whatever insight you had that, no, they haven't quite figured out quite how bad this is going to be, or in reverse, quite how good this is going to be. And that certainly happens, particularly you see that in the tech space a lot, is, well, gee, imagine if Facebook did this and it could grow to that, and totally underestimating what it could grow to, right? So it certainly happens that, you know, people underestimate on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the other key terms for someone getting started investing is probably market cap, and they'll see that in every app and everywhere they look. How does market capitalization get calculated for shares? Yeah, so it's just the number of shares on issue multiplied by the price per share. So the market cap number is telling you how big the company is, really, what its total worth is. Now, for an investor, I don't think that's really that useful, to be totally honest. I mean, I guess it's pointing you towards like the one with the biggest market cap at the moment, it's BHP, and number two would be Commonwealth Bank, I imagine, and they're all up there. Do you think it helps you stay away from some of the not-so-good companies, though? Having a look at the market cap? Not really, because the smaller companies might be the ones with the best growth. Mm-hmm. Whereas the big developed companies, maybe they don't have so much growth. Where it's a bit relevant is, so we talk about ETFs, right? It's evolving, but the foundations of ETFs, they were all indexed funds based on market capitalization, which meant that, so let's say you have one over the ASX 200, the ASX 200, top 200 companies in Australia, but that's weighted according to the index. So as I say, BHP is the biggest company. So for round numbers, let's say BHP is 10% of the Australian share market. So if you buy an ETF that covers the ASX 200, then you know that portfolio will hold 10% BHP. And then the next company, Commonwealth Bank, might be 9.8%. And so it'll weight it, which means that, I haven't seen the recent numbers, but something like 40% of that portfolio will be in the top 10 stocks in Australia. Because the nature of our economy is pretty small, mm-hmm. and so we're really concentrated at the top end. Yeah. So although it's the ASX 200, that might lead you to believe, and the portfolio will therefore hold 200 stocks. Sometimes it doesn't quite hold that, but generally it'll hold 200 stocks. But actually, the bottom 100 hardly matter because the percentage allocation, because it's done on market cap, the percentage is tiny, 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 tiny. Now, there are some ETFs that are starting to, they're doing equal weight and a few other things like that to work with that. And I know there was one I saw promoted recently where they exclude the top 20. Mm. So they give you the next lot down, which I think is really clever as yeah. well. So that sort of stuff's starting to get worked through. But that's where market cap, I guess, has had some relevance. But to you and I as investors, eh, it just tells me that company's bigger than that company, but that doesn't really help me decide whether it's a better investment or not. It's interesting. I guess like how low can a market cap go? Like if we're talking $5 million, are we starting to look at the dregs? I guess so. But I mean, generally you won't, I don't know, I don't really deal in that that bottom end space. There's no research on it anyway. See, because it even depends on the market. So you could get a company that the market cap in Australia, I can't think of a good example, (laughs) but you know, if you had a company in Australia that might be the 10th biggest company in Australia, let's say, and it's got a market cap of whatever, let's make it up. Let's say it was $2 billion. Well, then if you went over to the United States, that'd probably be stock number 3,000 or something. You know what I mean? Like, Or in reverse, if Apple decided to not be listed in the United States anymore and decided to list itself on the Australian share market, it'd probably be 50% of the index or something, might, right? There might not even be enough money for it to list <laughs> over it. here. But the fact that it's got a big market cap, does that mean it's a bad investment? Yeah. 
doesn't tell you anything about whether it's a good investment, you know. So, yeah, that's probably one. You're right. It's on a lot of stuff, but it's just noise. I'd yeah. not give that one too much attention. Okay. And then speaking of noise, so as a young investor, you're pretty much seeing every media piece around. How do you stay away from the barbecue tips and bad advice and all of these dodgy kind of websites online that point you in the completely wrong direction when you're getting started? Yeah, I think... Um, Firstly, be clear on your goal, why you're investing, because that really dictates what the investments are that you're going to buy. So that's around things like your time frame. So if someone says, hey, I've got this hot tip, this gold miner or this, I don't know, technology company that's just invented a new pillow or something, I don't know, right? <laughs> and you know, it's going to triple or whatever. Well, it's not greatly different to going down to the TAB and back in a horse, right? You're having a punt. Now, fine, if you've got a bit of money to spare and you want to have a flutter, it's just like... Melbourne Cup Day or whatever. I mean, go for it, right? Like, whatever makes you happy. But if your goal is, I'm trying to save a deposit for a house or something like that, that's probably not where you want to put your house deposit money, right? (laughs) So, yeah, I think just clarity on, look, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's my objective. And therefore, what I want to do is have a portfolio of diverse investments and probably some sort of fund, ETF, something like that is probably the easiest, lowest cost way to get that. Mm. And it might be a bit of a mixture. And we sort of haven't touched on it, but maybe we'll circle back. But asset classes is probably something worth talking about before, yeah. we, before we go. But to your question around how do you kind of avoid the missteps and stuff, as I say, just having clarity and therefore not falling for the short-term punt is probably the key. I think that's the way I'd, I'd suggest you approach it. And as we've already touched on, just don't fall into the short-term trading game mm. because you just, you can't. You can't win. No. So if we did want to talk about asset classes, we do talk a lot about general diversification, not having it all in Australia or international. But then if you're building a share portfolio, you don't want it all in financials. Correct. But even, I guess, so if you think asset classes, right, you can cut this up into really, really small things if you want, right? But let's just stay really high level, okay? So you'd normally think you've got Australian shares, overseas shares, property, bonds, and cash. Okay, five asset classes. And as I say, we can cut all of those down, but let's just start with those five. So if you understand that they're the five different asset classes, you can get all five of those through funds, especially through ETFs. Well, through managed funds too, but anyway, probably ETFs. Cash, personally, why would you bother? If you're going to have cash, just keep it in the bank. Okay, so let's so knock out one of those, okay? But we've got the other four. Aussie shares, overseas shares, property and bonds, right? So the interesting element there, and I guess which is what maybe think of it when you asked about, you know, how do you sort of not get waylaid and yeah. bad advice and that sort of stuff, is if you're thinking about, I don't know, let's say your goal is in three years, oh, I want to deposit on a house or I want to go on an overseas trip or something, but the important thing is the time frame's three years, yeah. okay? Then you could go 100% shares, but that might be unwise, okay? If you were a bit more conservative, I wouldn't go 100% shares if I had a three-year time yeah. frame. So you might go, well, all right, because the issue is, Statistically, about one in five years, the share market's going to have a negative year, mm-hmm. okay? And people think, oh, I want to avoid volatility, but actually you don't because avoiding volatility is having your money in the bank, <laughs> right? The reason shares give a better return and property to some extent is you're getting compensated for the volatility. So you want the volatility because that's the exact reason that you get the higher return. But the issue with that is statistically one in five negative. Now, it could be two years in a row are negative and then you get eight that are positive. Who knows, okay? But every now and again, they'll be negative. Mm. So if you've only got a short time frame, let's say a three-year time frame, and you're unlucky enough to have the two negatives back-to-back or something in that three years, then it's not going to be a yeah. great result. So you'd be really unlucky, but let's say. What you'd probably do, therefore, is go, all right, well, let's think about the asset classes. What I'll do, rather than going 100% in Australian shares, 
not sort of giving advice here, just general thinking about it, but you might do 30% in Australian shares, 30% in overseas shares, so that's 60, and then the other 40% you put in bonds, maybe 30% bonds and 10% property, mm. if you like. Well, you know, have it, but you'd cut it up a bit, right? On the basis that then usually if share markets have a bad year, bonds will at least hold their own and sometimes they'll go up because people are – get scared of shares and they look yeah, for something yeah. else and so they move into bonds and it pushes bond prices up, right? So you get a bit of offsetting there often. So it's good to have a good handle around asset classes because then you can think about how you're going to put your portfolio together. And like I say, you can actually do that all, you know, you open up your share trading account, you can use exchange-traded funds or managed funds if you prefer, and you can use those funds even though it seems weird because you're buying on the share market, but you can buy a fund that's property or you can buy a fund that's bonds. Mm. So you can get all your asset classes in the one place, which is really good. It means opening up the one account, okay? It's really powerful and it really gives you a lot of options. You can think about, well, all right, well, I'm investing for 10 years, so therefore I can be really quite aggressive. So then you could even go into, well, all right, I'll tilt towards international shares and maybe even I'll go 10% in emerging markets or something like that that's even more aggressive and more volatile. But because it's more volatile, the returns on average are higher. Mm but you might have five years that are horrible, right? So you've got to be able to ride that out. And the funds these days have got so many different options available for you around different geographies, different um, industry sectors. Like you can get funds that are specifically on the healthcare, for instance, which tends to be a bit more of a defensive play on the basis that even in a recession, people are still going to pay for their medicines, you know? Or there's a fund that specialises in like solar panel and renewable energy and that sort of stuff, right? There are ethically screened type funds, which we use for quite a few clients, you know, mm-hmm. for people that have particular ethical concerns, usually around fossil fuels and that sort of stuff. So you can get funds that don't have any exposure to fossil fuels, which is really good. Mm-hmm. There are other funds that specifically invest in companies that are involved in sustainable, you know, use of water and those type of things, environmental type things too. So there are all sorts of different ways that, you know, once you start thinking about asset classes, that then you can cut it down further. Yeah. But I think that's really helpful for beginner investors, which to my We've all got limited time, right? You could spend your time researching, okay, which of the big four banks am I going to buy? I wouldn't. I'd spend that same time deciding, okay, which ETF am I going to buy across these different overseas ETFs? Am I going to buy, maybe I'll put half in the US because that's the biggest economy in the world and I might put, I don't know, a quarter in Japan and a quarter in Taiwan or whatever. You know, to me that would be a better use of your time than trying to pick an individual stock is pick which ETFs you want and understand that those ETFs, it's like that US one often will be the S&P 500. So sitting underneath that is 500 shares. Now it's market capped as we talked about before. So the top 200 are probably pretty small, but nevertheless, it's not as concentrated as our share market. So you still get some very good diversification, you know, that sort of ability to diversify internationally, geographically, and also across different industry sectors is really exciting. and, And I think that's where by my mind, if you have to sort of really get into it, you know, roll the sleeves up a little bit, that's where I'd put my focus. Yeah. And it can stop you going too far astray getting started because if you're thinking I'm going to diversify my money, then you're not going to put it all in one barbecue tip. Sure. You're not going to just put everything you have into one stock that may or may not do well. So I think, yeah, if you're f- focusing on diversification really early on in the piece, even if you've only got $1,000 and you're thinking, We'll just start with something diversified, maybe an ETF, instead of just putting all your money in one share because you've only got a smaller starting point and just having it in your mind the whole time. Yeah, yeah, no, spot on. Yeah, absolutely. So before we finish up, Paul, what what are some of your favourite resources to point people to when they want to learn more about investing in shares? 
Yeah, sure. Well, look, I mean, look, a bit of a shameless plug, but <laughs> we do have an online course, yes. Invest in Shares with Confidence. So if any of your listeners are interested in that, you could check that out, which is at financialautonomy.com.au slash shares. And we actually have got a coupon set up there. If you use the code HTM, uh, how to money, obviously, then you'll get $100 off, right? So if anyone's interested in that, HTM's the code, and that's financialautonomy.com.au slash shares. Yeah, so <laughs> just a bit of a plug there. The other ones, the ETF provider websites, particularly Vanguard and BlackRock, have got really good resources and educational resources on their website. So I'd encourage, you know, have a look at those. Now, obviously, if you go to the Vanguard website, I mean, it's got general information, but if it gets into any product stuff, clearly they're not going to talk about anyone else's but their own. So, you know, obviously have an awareness there. It's biased factual uh, information. Correct. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Biased factual, that's right. But no, they do have good information and BlackRock and Vanguard are the two biggest money managers in the world. So they've certainly got some resources available to build some good educational content and build a decent website, you know. So I reckon they're really good. They're probably the main sources. I mean, if you want to graph sometimes, I quite like looking at share market graphs and I know there's an argument that it's irrelevant because it's historical information, it's already happened and it doesn't tell you anything about the future. But I think sometimes it does give you a little bit of context and I find it somewhat useful. So if you want to have a look at graphs, then I find Yahoo Finance to be excellent. Mm. You can get in different indices there and you can play around with the graphs. You can put you know, the Australian market next to the US market and we'll put it on the same graph and you can specify your time period and stuff. So I find that one really good. As I mentioned earlier, most of the brokers, unless you go the really low cost ones, but most of them will give you access to some sort of research. And I think there are some even where you can, they might give you access to basic research, but you can pay a bit more per month to get more detailed research and stuff. I mean, there's different researches that you can subscribe to and anyway, do a bit of internet researching and you'll find that out. So they're probably, they're probably the main ones. In terms of resources, and probably, I mean, we are wrapping up, just probably a final thought, and I think you kind of touched on this earlier, but for listeners, sometimes what I hear is, or a question I get is, how much do I need to start investing? And the answer is not very much. So, like, if you're going to buy an ETF, you could just buy, let's say you had $500, okay? Realistically, if you've got less than 500 probably a bit tough. But $500, you could buy, put that all into a single ETF, because the reality is that ETF's probably got, you know, 100 different shares sitting underneath it. So it's, you're pretty diversified anyway. And the brokerage is probably going to cost you 20 bucks or 30 bucks or something. It might even cost you less. <laughs> it's not very much money. And so long as you're going to hang on to it for quite a long time, which hopefully you are, mm. then that brokerage is not going to be a very big deal. So the flip side is if you've got 5000 and you pay $20 brokerage, then proportionally it's even less, right? So it's, it's nice the bigger you've got. But the hardest part sometimes with anything, not just investing, is making a start. You know, it's so easy to procrastinate, isn't it? So, yeah, probably just something I'd just like to leave the How to Money listeners with is, yeah, don't be afraid to just start with 500 bucks or a small amount because you'll get really good learnings out of it, you know, and you'll get a bit of volatility and you'll see markets go up and down and that sort of stuff and you'll figure out, gee, well, I'm a real stress head <laughs> and this really bothers me, yeah. in which case, mm, that's not the way I want to go. Or, Actually, you know what? I looked at it for the first couple of weeks and then, you know, I forgot about it and I didn't look at it for six months, which will make you a really good investor because looking at it too often is about the worst thing you can do. So it's really good learning for yourself and it's better to learn that with $500 than to wait until, you know, down the road and you get some big inheritance or something and then you've got no idea and you're too petrified to do anything because you've got no idea and if I do something wrong and it's a big amount of money or whatever, you know. So don't be afraid to start small. Yeah, it's better to make the mistakes with $500 than. 
10 times that amount. Exactly right. Mm, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Paul, on the podcast. And if listeners want to follow up with you online or ask any questions, where should they go? Yeah, so the Financial Autonomy website, it's financialautonomy.com.au. Yeah, so they can certainly find out all about us there. And uh, yeah, and obviously give us a listen on the podcast when you listen to all the How to Money podcasts and you got you can't find another one of Kate to listen to, then you could give the Financial Autonomy one a listen as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Beauty. Thanks, Kate. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money podcast.